all our families. We have families that's not even in the city anymore. They're uh, families in Klein Pice, out in Spryfield, in Dartmouth, Sackville. And we, we don't have too many living right in the city. And we had to be satisfied. They put us in public housing. And uh, here's where we'll have to stay because we haven't got any means of uh, bettering ourselves right now. But this is not what we want at all. The thing that motivated me was my grandmother crying in my ear. When we used to go visit grandmother when she had to be institutionalized because she couldn't live in our house no more by herself, we would go visit. And then when you left, she would cry. She would cry, take me home, take me back to Africville. My children will never, never get to enjoy life the way that I enjoyed life in Africville. And when that clicked in my head, that's when I said, I got to do something about it. Do you, do you think we can ever rebuild this community? I would love to see it. Um, I don't know how it would work, though, honestly. I think uh, one of the best ideas I heard, not my idea at all, but uh, someone was saying, like, with the, the settlement that the city had, they should have made us a bank that we could lend to you know, people to build their houses so that we could build a community. We could actually, you know, buy houses in an area together. What I would like to see is, I, I, I don't expect them to move things off of our land and do such, but just give us the equivalent of what land, the, the acreage that we owned in Africville and give us our Africville land back and give us our community back. The Africville relocation was presented as a liberal and humanitarian measure to improve the living conditions of underprivileged people. What went wrong? They cheated us, and I'm one that was cheated. We didn't have to move into the city to have beautiful homes. We had beautiful homes in Africa. If you don't move at a certain time, we'll bring out the bulldozers and push your shacks over. It's time that we looked at them wrong and righted them. I know we'd all fight to get back out there. We still call it home. Can we get you to end on the note of, let's hear Africville forever? Africville forever and a day. In the last episode of this series, we are looking forward to a time where we may one day heal the scars of the past with the hope that the community can be whole again. We know there are no easy answers, but that is no excuse for inaction. All levels of government had failed to see the true wealth of Africville and the centuries of bonds that were formed in this community. They saw a people they refused to understand, occupying land that they wanted. This is where after they made my grandfather move out of the park, we're in the location of like his protest camp, like right here in the spot where we're standing. But as today, we're now standing in the church museum parking lot and adjacent to the protest trailer. 
Well, originally that was Dixon land where the bridge is going over. And like what we know is from oral tradition that from that bridge being built there, even back when it was built, that the Africville community would have received some kind of compensation along with the Dixons whose land it actually was to really compensate them for that, to, to be able to build the bridge. And, but it's the same thing here with the port because if you look over right here, this port, they're, they're, Four or five container ships can come through there in a day. Easily a billion dollars in money come through this land that was once Africa. And as you can see, they just keep moving closer and closer and closer. What started way down the other end and just the container terminal has now moved in my lifetime at least three different expansions. That was all Africa where the container pier was. If you originally back in the day where Mount St. Vincent is about over there, those lands were all occupied by Africans back in the day. It's all, all of the industry was seen, they saw this land for its real value and how valuable it actually could be. The expropriation of the land happened because the industry of the railroad, the transportation, the ports, they knew what was coming. In 2015, the city made what remained of Africville an off-leash dog park. Many in the community felt deeply hurt. While people that was um, complained about within the community about being an off-leash dog park, when, when the community made noise and just asked the people, if you're going to have your dogs here, please put them on a leash so they're not just roaming wild shit. People made a big fuss about it, like that their dogs had the privilege to run around the lands with no leash on or just act however they want. But yet our people can't even come to the land and really act or live the way that they want to. Like, they're giving more dignity to their animals than they are to my people, right? So it's kind of a sensitive situation. But through it all, we didn't mind that. It was just to respect the fact that this is all we have. So where do we start in finding justice? 50 years later, we need to understand the long-term impact of what has been taken from Africville. Everybody knows that intergenerational wealth comes from land ownership. People go out and buy a house, they invest into that home, and then when they die, they leave it to their children. Their children use that property as equity to go on to do other things. That's how that natural growth occurs. Absolutely. It's necessity too, you're right. Yeah. If there's one thing that we've had as people people here in this province, has been land. So the question needs to be asked, why is there no, why didn't that intergenerational wealth happen within the African Nova Scotian community? They have the land. Well, there are reasons for that. If you go back and look at history in terms of planning within HRM, formerly the city of Halifax, the city of Dartmouth, the county of Halifax, what you'll find is that zoning regulations and bylaws were made to restrict the ability of African Nova Scotians to actually use that asset of land for to generate wealth. Um, So... Yeah, so they pretty much placed us in a system designed to fail. Like Absolutely. The, the rules that were laid out were constraints upon our people just to make sure that they couldn't get that elevated place in society. Absolutely. You look at uh, what's going on right now in the Prestons, mm. the land titles. Coming back. Yeah, it's a big people, thing people are now in 2021 
having to go to get clear title to the land that they've lived on Damn. for over 200 Centuries. years. Yeah. Because when they gave them the land, they didn't give them the land clear out. Yeah. They did what was called a um, um, <clears throat> just a land land occupation, hmm. meaning they could live on the land, but they didn't own it. Yeah. So what does that mean? What's the impact of that? That means you can't leave your land to your family. You can't sell your land. So there's no economic Benefit, growth. Really, yeah. There's no benefit. So finally now today, we are beginning to see work being done to clear the titles in the Prestons, Lincolnville, and a couple of other black communities throughout the province. So we're moving. Things are starting to move. But it's going to take each and every one of us to make sure that we stay on top of it and we're aware of it and that the supports that are needed to facilitate economic growth are in place for our people to finally get a piece of the pie. In 2010, Mayor Peter Kelly made a full apology on behalf of the city of Halifax. It was backed with some funding, which led to the city building a replica of the Seaview Baptist Church, which is now the Africville Museum. Since then, more monuments have been created to educate visitors to Africville. But for Eddie Carvery, the decades spent in protests have given him clear focus that only real change will be enough. How do you feel with what has been done for Africville, and by that I mean like the building of the church museum, the mayor's apology in 2010. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel like it's a bunch of crap. Uh, uh, the mayor's apology, well, they didn't know. Peter Kelly, he thought he was doing the right thing. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not at nobody for their own personal reasons. But what I'm saying, the whole the whole nine yards was wrong. The whole society what, what, at the what time. What they did yeah. to us, it was deliberate. Uh, 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 the reason why we're literate is because they didn't want us to learn anything. The reason why we had to come up with such hardships is because we had something and they wanted it. And it took them all that year, all them years, before they could get a racist government sitting in in the seat in Halifax to come up with them conclusions to, to literally tell us a bunch of lies to steal something that was not rightfully theirs. They're all gone now, but everybody, everybody knows that what they did to Africa was wrong, but yet we still cannot get a resolution whereas justice must be served. They're not on that page with us. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm going to stay in their face. But uh, it's time that we look at the racist society that we live in and realize that it's the people in power today that promotes what happened yesterday. While it can be easy to feel despair at the loss of Africville, Despite the upheaval and pain, leaders emerged. Civic-minded people who knew that the community survival meant investing in the next generation. Irving is one of them. People like yourself, Coach Sean Mantley, 
you guys really held it down for the community and tried your best to, to keep these kids organized mm-hmm. and loving each other. So so maybe you could talk a little bit about your role with the community Y and how important the community Y on Godigan Street is for the children of Africa. Well, I've just finished up my role as director of the community. Why I'm no longer director, I I stay involved. I'm co-chair of the um, of the advisory committee for the community. Why it has been the backbone for a lot of kids. It's a place where they can go to feel safe. That's it. It's a place where they can go to get some self confidence. The programs that are run through the community. Why. Of course, basketball, it's very well known for its basketball program, but even even tied into the basketball program is the each one teach one mm-hmm. model and the carry the books, carry the ball was introduced so that we seen basketball as a tool to be used to help kids in school, That's to right. keep them engaged, to keep them, to provide mentorship. And there, there have been a lot of uh, really good mentors over the years. Today, the effort of Irving and countless other community leaders is paying off. A new generation of informed and motivated Africville descendants and African Nova Scotians are hungry for change. So I'm not a descendant of Africville, or you never know, might be. This is it. But my connection is really the, the descendants who have in a sense, supported me since I was a kid. Like, for example, Irvin was my coach forever. Like, through after I played Afterville Lakers, and then in, in high school, he was my basketball coach. A bunch of other, like Linda Carvery and, and whatnot. So really, my connection to Afterville is, is the support I got from descendants growing up as a kid in the community in the North End, God is the Street. This is Lindell Smith, the counselor for District 8, the Halifax Peninsula North constituency where Africville resides. Lindell was elected in 2016, and he understands this fight. Africville has always been on my mind, but I didn't know, I just didn't know what what for. Like, I I, I knew that I cared and, and, and you know, the land is, is, is sacred to the community, but I didn't really, I couldn't figure out why I would think about Africville so much. I, 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 so I just, did a lot of reflecting, um, especially when I got elected, uh, related to Africville. And in, I don't know, three years, three and a half years or so ago, I moved to end of Roby Street, which is just up the hill. And I almost didn't decide to move there um, in in this condo because of how close it was to Africville. Because part of me was like, and I don't know, I didn't know, and I and I can't confirm this, but I was like, this, is, this was probably Africville land at some point. Like, this is, because I can just walk down like I, me and my daughter come here all the time we just yeah. walk down the hill go through the trail and end up here like this is our summer our summer spot and i almost didn't move there because i was like i felt like i was betraying the community but then i also thought like if there isn't more people who are kind of just taking ownership from the community of you know this is my community too then some other person is just going to move in there That's and it. think nothing of it mm-hmm. That me living there and, and overseeing Africville every day and thinking about it really, I think, allowed me to reflect and say, OK, I know what why I've been thinking about it is because we need to see the future. And, you know, the Africville for everything, I think, is the, the final piece of the puzzle. It's like, that's what it is. It needs to be the community 
not just give the land back, but like the economic development. So why does the port get to benefit from the 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 work that the community Africa done in the past? Why does the urban shipyards get to benefit? Why does CN get to benefit? But the descendants get to have a reunion. Yeah. Um, and that's that's it. We do have a role to play for the future of Africville and in when I became counselor and I want to first make sure that we had a social policy and we built that. And then the next step was, okay, let's put that policy into practice. And that was where the visioning came from. But that was only after talking to descendants. Um, you know, I had an idea, but I didn't want to impose my idea on the community. We should be at a point where the community and descendants are determining what the next steps are. Like right now, I, a point where I don't think anything is moving, which at least all the descendants and the whoever community members included knew, know what direction we're going in. It felt good. Like the process of actually coming up with like the concept and stuff was, I, I it's like a sort of like abstract depiction a little bit. I wanted people to look at it and like think about what they're looking at and not just I could have easily just did like a realistic photo of the church and mm. but I was like there's more to that like this Afriville forever it doesn't mean it's like a picture or a moment in time it's like a journey you know this is Vanessa Thomas she's an artist also known as Nessie she has received accolades for her work and most recently released a very successful NFT collection she also created the artwork for this podcast. Oh, okay, my connection to Africville is my grandmother and my great-grandmother from Africville. Um, my great-grandmother was Margaret Carvery, um, and she married a Crawley from East Preston, so then they moved to East Preston, and, and then that's kind of where, like, we, my family is settled. And so I didn't really know much about Africville growing up, um, because um, I was in Preston and um, my grandmother passed away before I was born. So I didn't really get a chance to like hear all the stories and stuff. So um, I actually just found out like all that information like recently when I was like doing the artwork for this podcast and stuff. Been pro- like I knew I've known about Africville and I knew my family was from Africville. But like I said, it's just that disconnection because I was born in Preston and my like my, my dad's the youngest sibling, so he wasn't really out here. Like, like he, there's older siblings that I can definitely talk to and like call them up and hear stories, probably. But um, it's not that like close connection and like history. Like, I still want to learn more. But I learned along the way that my grandmother was like a midwife and she delivered a lot of babies in Preston, and that was kind of like like really cool for me, like eye opening. Like, wow, like. Africville forever, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> we met both of them at Africville one summer evening. Along our journey, like, we've heard doing this podcast, like, stories from the older generation that glimpse that they were all talking about, like, that hope, that spark. Both of these guests that are with us today have done some pretty amazing things. Nessie, you with your art. And over here, Mr. Counselor, like, you got a, a lot of weight on your shoulders. I believe you're the, the second black council member to ever be elected to the Halifax City Council. Mm-hmm. So I know you must feel immense pressure each and every day you step into that office as a challenge and a fight. And you do that not only for Africville, but African Nova Scotians at large. 
when in council, how, how did that, that like accolade that I just gave you make, mm-hmm. make you feel each and every day when you had to, to walk in and do your job? You know, there's the, 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 the pressure, yeah. you know, everyone says, how does, you know, the pressure that, that, that you feel and having that weight on your shoulder. Um, you know, I think just being black, you already kind of walk around with this invisible pressure. So for me, it was it was definitely a whole new world that I'd never experienced before being an elected official in politics. But I also was was ready, like I was ready for the fight. Like I I grew up in housing. When I got elected, it, I think there's I was ready for the pressure, but also now understanding that I'm representing an entire city, and people looked at me as the black counselor. Mm-hmm. So you know that was something that was difficult at the beginning but then i kind of had to show people that i'm more than than that and now it's really focusing on getting things moving it's been too long for nothing to really be done everything that we want to do with divisioning with with that's economic development with that's how do we activate the land more how do we talk about the court cases that that's been happening with the city all of the things that descendants have been saying for years in us as a city taking ownership and saying, okay, we have to step up and support. I think that uh, what gives it hope is things like this are being done. There's uh, there's people coming to realization of their family history, even though they come from other black communities from Nova Scotia. They realize that Africville is almost like a route. It's like a way back home, way home before when they were originally brought here. And I think that that as long as it's gaining interest in, in people's minds that have some kind of connection to it, I think that spark, that fight will always stay alive because then questions are going to get asked and that's the only way you're going to get the answers. And then from there, the new people, the talent that they have, they can use that to to bring a light to Africville in a whole new way, right, in this new generation that, that, we have, that we're living in. Things like this is going to keep the conversation going, keep it alive. I'd like to see a land trust... Um, and I like to see it in all the black communities. I think it's really important to just protect our land. And the people around this land, Africville, building around it to also respect Africville. Like, I don't know what's going on over there. Like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. Infill. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, you know, the the bridge, the, the CN rail, like everything. I, I think that there's like, yeah. I just wish that they, I hope that they respect the land of Africville. I think what gives me hope is knowing that there are going to be thousands of people that listen to this, that have made it this far in this series, and that I know after listening to all the different people who spoke, um, listening to all the archive footage and audio, I think... Uh, there will be people that will uh, be moved to take action uh, and will be moved to keep the story of Africville alive forever. And I think, yeah, that gives me hope. We wanted to end on this message of hope and action. But as we were close to wrapping up the show, something interesting happened. The bank called and uh, asked me if I had a key for a safety deposit box, and I told them I didn't. They said they would make arrangements to have it opened and uh, they wouldn't be present. 
Nelson Carvery, the youthful 80-year-old elder who grew up in Africville, had some sudden news for us. So we invited him back to the studio. And the only thing in the box was a doc document, original document from 1941 um, regarding the lands that the British had given to my family. And my father, if he, I think he must have just forgot uh, that they owned the land, that, that how they got the land. Inside a long forgotten safety deposit box, the dusty documents showed some serious questions about how the city acquired his father's land. He got paid for anything but his house. Okay. And he got 14000 for that, and, uh, but he never got paid for the barn or the store that he built. Yeah, so let's talk yeah. about that. What he, he owned a barn on your property. There, were, there was a store. He owned several parcels of land. Yeah, he owned, he owned a couple of rental houses in the community also. Yeah. yeah. Well, your grandfather is the first one to tell me that uh, he said, Nelson, your, your father owns a lot of land in Africa. I said, yeah, I know he owns a little. No, he owns a lot of land. I said, oh, <laughs> okay. So what, what, he, what he meant by that, I went to the archives and I found all this thing with Dioxin. Could you tell me what land Aaron Carvery and William Carvery, his father, owned? In Africville, and I believe in uh, Eagle Lake, East Preston, between e East and North. And they barred out document after document, and I just kept going through with them and took everything that what they would give me. And there was one document that they said that they can't give it to me right now, but they will let me know how this will work. Anyway, it was four years in the makings, and this was a piece of land that was on the, where they dumped, to put the city dump. Yeah. And it looks like, uh, by everything that I can see and anybody looks at, is that they don't have proof of ownership. Of the dump. Of the dump. Of land. the land that they mm. used for the dump. Yeah, that belongs to the Carvery family. George VI, by the grace of God of Great Britain, Ireland, and the British dominions, defender of the faith and emperor of India, to all to whom these presents shall come, greeting. Whereas the land hereinafter described... These historical documents were hard to interpret. ...being disposed of to William Carvery Esquire of Halifax in the province of Nova Scotia. So we reached out to George Fosty, the co-author of Black Ice, to get more context. ...and to the grantee, his heirs and assigns forever. Saving, accepting, and reserving unto us our successes and assignees, the free use, passage, and enjoyment. My father passed away in 76, and it's not that they didn't tell me anything, but nobody in the community told anybody anything. He never ever told me how much land he owned. He never told me where he got the land from. But there's a document, I don't know if you got to see the document or if we can get it to you or not, but it's from the British government, dated 41, and this didn't happen in 41. This happened to his grandfather. And on this document, it tells of uh, land in East Preston and uh, called Eagle Lake, where we first landed as Maroon, and land in Africville. And I believe the way that's worded, just by its, the way it's written, that they hadn't had the right to take that land from us. No, I, I we concluded that the land had been taken stolen. Uh, that uh, they, they these families that showed up, the Maroons, it was a peace treaty. 
mm-hmm. okay, with the British government. And the British government uh, viewed the Maroons as a separate nation and group. So basically what you've done is it's a, it's a, uh, by seizing the land, they've, they've done what they did with First Nations. They've taken, they've gone in and taken the land of another nation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the black uh, maroon aspect of it is, uh, is, uh, is a, a, a violation of a, of a military treaty. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so that right there is, a, it's a totally different case. It's not just a land spec. Yeah. It's a, this was part of a military agreement between the British government and the, yeah. and the maroons of Jamaica. Mm-hmm. This was ceded to the uh, to the uh, families uh, of uh, the Maroon families, and uh, as part of the settlement, and so that alone is uh, uh, is one element of it. The second part of this is that with the introduction of the railroads through Nova Scotia and the seizure of land and the basic uh, the, uh, disappearance of the deeds, etc. Again, that was a theft of land through Africville all the way up towards uh, Bedford Basin, towards uh, some of these communities uh, where some of the Maroon families lived uh, under uh, Governor Went, uh, yeah. I think Wentworth. Yeah. Sackville is uh, one of them. Yeah, so, Maroon yeah, Hills that, up that, there. Sackville, yeah. things like that. Yeah, those areas again. That's a separate area as well. Yeah, uh, that's a discussion uh, that needs to be addressed. So you've got to break down, and, and what you see. Uh, in terms of what they were offering the families, they were offering them $5,000 for the home or structure back in 1960s. Well, that's what the home was worth, but they didn't, they never really told them what the land was worth. Yeah. And the land was sitting, uh, it was a gold. Uh, it was one, it's what the most important harbor in it's North America, yeah. natural harbor. Yeah. yeah. If it wasn't for the Halifax Harbor and the Bedford Basin, the, the allies would not have won the war in the North Atlantic. This was, they wouldn't have the trade system. They have the day across uh, Canada. Uh, Halifax was the key city uh, for most of the history of Canada and, and the development of, uh, of North America prior to the American Revolution. So what you were sitting on was the prime was prime real estate. And uh, it's late as the 1960s or 50s when they're trying to expand the harbor post-World War II. Uh, they were acknowledged it in some of their studies that this land was, they needed this land, but 90% of it was held outside of uh, the government of Canada and the city of Halifax. And the, But, you know, the question was, how do we gain that 90% of the land through the Bedford Basin area? Mm-hmm. And the way they did that was simply by shortchanging the uh, occupants on those lands, not telling them what it was worth. It's like knowing that there was oil under the ground, but not telling them. Until you take them I, I, I use that analogy quite frequently because oh, okay. that, that's what it seems like, right? Because the way that I see it, um, this colonialist approach, like they, they know what tactics they were using. They knew what was going to come of the development. They saw that they had that gold mine of land in front of their eyes, but our people were occupying it and they had to find a way to remove them. It's not a question of not knowing what it was worth. These people always knew what it was worth in these, these corporations and these entities. Uh, it was a question of whether they were willing to pay to the fair price for the, to, for the value. And, and, you know, it's an ongoing debate and it's, it's an ugly debate, but it, it reveals so much about how things are done. The problem we have with Africa is the value of the land mm-hmm. and, and reparations, right? Yeah. Um, if if it's stolen, it's stolen. But, but it's the question of how much is that worth. Well, we know what that's worth. It's the most valuable harbor on the East Coast outside of New York. I mean, what's the value of that? Yeah. As long as that wound exists in our history, um, and until we address that, uh, we can't uh, move forward. Personally, for me, I don't know how you feel, but I would I would love to see 
a, a larger connection between our community and the indigenous community of Nova yes, Scotia. I think I would like that too. We have a lot to yeah. learn yeah. A, a how to approach these situations from them. I think, yeah. and, and they could show us a yeah. lot. Yes. Yeah, I, I remember you telling me yeah. you were you were going somewhere I, I, to I, speak. I, yeah, I did. Yeah, and I got good results there. And they said that the, the the paperwork that I have from the British government is a lot like the paperwork they had. He said. Yeah, but for you, the main thing is getting Africville back. Yes, and getting these documents changed so that they're still alive and well into the rest of my family's name because my name I'm not going to be here much longer. Yeah. Well, you know, you got to be realistic here. And, mm-hmm. I'm 80 now, and 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 I just became uh, aware of it. No, like I didn't know about this 10 years ago. I, I don't want them to die with me. Well, you well you should you should have your name on that document. I, I know that uh, when we were doing research, uh, we found that around 1909, 1908, when they were railroads were going through all of the uh, land deeds and claims that were tied to uh, the loyalist families and the maroon families of Africville. All of those those deeds just disappeared, right? Mm-hmm. So they were able to put the Intercontinental Railroad through to Halifax through Africville. Uh, again, that those documents when we were doing research for Black Ice, we assumed that those documents were missing, had been destroyed. But we also saw something that was very interesting—a caveat. When James Robinson Johnson was murdered, he was representing the Black communities. He was uh, in, in court cases back around 1915. It was fascinating that the city of Halifax went into his office and took all of his legal documents, cleaned out his office, legal notes, uh, cases, and uh, and documentation, and uh, uh, specific to the Africville community and others. Uh, so, uh, so all of the documentation from that law office of James Robinson Johnson uh, disappeared. This fight is far from over. If you want to learn more about how you can support the fight for Africville, visit africvilleforever.com. This podcast has featured the voices of the people of Africville past, present, and future. We encourage you to seek out more stories for yourself, as this show has barely scratched the surface of this incredible community. There are many more untold stories and those eager to share them. Africville Forever was hosted by Eddie Carvery III and Alfred Bergeson. It was edited by Reese Waters. The artwork was designed by Vanessa Thomas. Publicity and promotion by Nzinga Malar, Mary Gibran, and Alessia Stafieri. A special thank you to Jordan Heath Rawlings and Kyla Dudney. This has been a Podstarter production for the Frequency Podcast Network.